Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is John Anazu, and we're talking about his new book co-authored with Tim Keller titled Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. John, welcome to the show. Zach, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, John is a distinguished professor of law and religion at the prestigious Washington University in St. Louis. And we're really looking forward to discussing his new, and and it's a quite timely work. But before we do that, John, could you first tell us some about yourself and and your work and and maybe how you came to work on a project like this? Sure. Uh, So is that my uh, my academic background is as a law professor, and my core scholarly work is on the First Amendment's right of assembly. And so my initial years in, in teaching and writing were around the right of assembly, uh, and that led to uh, kind of a crossover book called Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. And in that book, I was asking, given the fact of difference in our world, how do we figure out how to live and coexist with other citizens and other people and neighbors and coworkers who disagree on fundamental things that we're not going to resolve? And it was a book about law and a book about social practices aimed toward a, a generalist kind of audience. Uh, and, and it got me thinking about these questions in a way that we're, we're sort of beyond the academy, but trying to uh, be part of a, of a broader discourse as well. Uh, and along the way, I, I um, became uh, acquainted with and friends with uh, Pastor Tim Keller, who started a big church in Manhattan and uh, was really wrestling with similar kinds of questions from his pulpit in New York City, uh, as I was looking at from from the classroom and the academic environment here. And and together we started thinking, is there a way to bring about some of these concepts in a a more particularized Christian discourse that could speak to Christians in particular, how to engage across these deep differences? And so that was sort of the impetus for, for the book. Yeah. Well, the book's broken into three parts, the framing our engagement, communicating our engagement, and embodying our engagement. Uh, give us, if you can, an overview of what this book is about and and how you've landed on this particular structure to get your message across. Yeah. So, you know, I would say as an initial matter that Tim and I, when we started thinking about this idea initially, we thought we could write a book that's sort of didactic and informational that combines our academic and theological views about pluralism and these kinds of questions, uh, and we could probably make it uh, att- attractive to a generalist audience, but we thought how much better it would be to have a book based around narrative and stories that could not just explain some of these concepts, but try to model them and live them out. And then it became very uh, obvious that rather than just tell our own stories, this kind of book would work better if we could expand it a bit and have more of a, a compilation of different stories. And so we we reached out to 10, 10 friends to join us and uh, really, uh, I think much more so than a typical edited volume, it became a joint project doing this together. 
and we organize the book, as you said, into these three sections. And so the first, uh, the first section of, of framing our engagement, we wanted people to name with specificity the problem that we're trying to address, which is the reality of these deep differences around issues, not only of religious belief, but also politics and race and sexuality and all kinds of other questions and, and the reality of that in the world. And then how might Christians theologically think of themselves as part of this world, not controlling it, not isolated from it, but part of it? And how do we frame the engagement that way? Uh, and then in the second part, we wanted to talk about the specific craft and skill of communicating engagement. What does it mean to to be a writer or an artist or a translator? And, and how do we communicate ideas to audiences that won't always share our assumptions that will need sometimes uh, uh, more consideration about why we're saying something or why we believe something and how do we model communicating well. And then the final section of embodying engagement, can we think of examples of how we do this, particularly as Christians across deep differences? What does it mean to pursue reconciliation in a holistic way? What does it mean to be a peacemaker or a bridge builder? Uh, and so the arc of the book is to is to set up the problem, name it precisely and accurately, then, then suggest ways of communicating about the problem and difference and then embodying relationships across difference. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, the, the chapters, they're not, they're not prescriptions, are they? They're, they're stories. What, what was the idea behind this? Yeah, we really just wanted to, I, I think increasingly people respond to stories and, and Christians should respond to stories. The Christian tradition is full of good storytelling. The Jesus of the gospels is, is a storyteller and communicates through stories. And I think recently Christians have kind of lost the gift of storytelling. And so we wanted to try to model some of that better. And so we went to these uh, friends in particular, some of some of them we knew well and others we were meeting kind of for the first time. But we said, "Let can you think about times, experiences, practices, encounters in your own life when you had to wrestle with these kinds of questions? What does it mean to engage across difference? What does it mean to slow down in an unfamiliar space and what maybe when you're not in control and try to figure out how to communicate imaginatively or creatively across differences? And to me, the whole thing really worked uh, by starting off with an in-person gathering, which is sort of hard to imagine these days when we're on Zoom so much. But uh, we, we made it really a requirement of, of being part of the book that the very first thing we would do was to together in person in St. Louis. And um, we spent a day and a half together starting just by sharing some of our stories with each other around a long dinner. And it was an extraordinary moment of of connecting, seeing common threads through some of our stories, seeing common frustrations, common opportunities, and really getting to know one another on a level of not just different people writing a book together, but uh, trying to pursue a kind of friendship and a kind of empathy and understanding with each other. And, and I think that actually ended up bringing out some of the, the stories with greater clarity and, and greater empathy. As we, as we were editing, we were able to tie comments and observations to how we understood people. And that, that made a, a big difference to me in, in thinking through the project. Well, you write that the book's central question is, is, 
is how Christians can engage with those around us while both respecting people whose beliefs differ from our own while maintaining our, our gospel confidence. Um, does the book focus more on Christian to non-Christian interaction, or are you mo- more focused on, on intra-Christian dialogue that nevertheless and, and has been at times ju- just as divisive? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And the answer is both because the bar is so low all around. <laughs> I mean, I think, quite frankly, Christians have done a, a, a pretty poor job of modeling some of this stuff, even though, as we argue in the book, Christians have some ter- tremendous resources in, in, in their tradition, in Christian virtues, uh, in the call of, of Scripture for Christians. So it should be that Christians could be leading the way across navigating these differences. And instead, as you suggested, we see all kinds of examples of uh, Christian echo chambers, of, of Christian caricature, of Christian distancing, both from other Christians who believe differently and also across Christian faith to non-Christians. And that's not to say there aren't positive examples. There are, and we try to highlight some in the book. But in general, I think there's a lot of work to be done. And you might think of this book as as directed first at a kind of introspection to call Christians to a, a different way of thinking about their engagement in the world, but then also very much wanting to model and partner with others uh, who are their neighbors and coworkers and friends. Yeah. Well, you you talk about in, in America today, they're, they're very fundamental differences in how people are thinking and seeing the world, you know, like what the purpose of the country is and should be, what is the nature of the common good? What does it mean to flourish? We live in a pluralistic age. Why do you think it's important to understand our past to rightly understand pluralism? Right. So a couple of things. I I mean, on one sense, an honest accounting of the past and of memory, not just our own memory, but the memory of generations that preceded us is is important and necessary for understanding how we relate today. We don't just exist in structures and neighborhoods and social classes by accident. This all happened uh, because of decisions that were made and maybe some decisions that we made. And so understanding that uh, accurately is, is essential. And tied to this, I think, is understanding who Americans are as a people and as a heritage in a way that maintains some critical distance, but is not um, completely resigned to a narrative of pessimism. And, and so I think towing the line between an honest reckoning of America's flaws and shortcomings, as well as its promises and opportunities is really important. And I worry today that we actually don't see much of that because we skew in one direction or the other. Either we have this very unhealthy patriotism that lurches into nationalism or the the mentality is burn it all down. There's nothing good there. And I think both of those miss the mark. I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit encouraged just recently when I heard Amanda Gorman at, at uh, President Biden's inauguration and the poem she recited, which, which really seemed to me to to strike the balance there of both some healthy distance, but also some appreciation for what could be. And so I think important to naming accurately the past is to name both opportunities and shortcomings. But then I think also it helps us to recognize just as a demographic or sociological matter that we are quite a different people than we were 
100 years ago or 200 years ago. And so as we sort out what it means to be an American, what our constitutional values are, how we think about religious pluralism, those are in some ways fundamental and ever-present questions. And they're also in some ways very contextualized questions. Uh, So one example you mentioned a minute ago, the common good. I, I think, I mean, as a Christian myself, I think naming the common good in an absolute sense, as in the purpose toward which humankind is headed, is part of the, part of the deal. It's part. It's a theological imperative within Christian faith, and other faiths can name their own sense of the common good. But it becomes very difficult to think about the common good writ large for the United States. What what is the common good today? Can we fill it with any content other than very, very vacuous terms? in a way that actually represents the diversity of viewpoints and beliefs that we have in this country. I think it's a very hard question, and we only understand the significance and importance of the question when we compare language and culture and people today from earlier times in our history. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Well said. Well, in the introduction, you mentioned these these civic practices from your book, Confident Pluralism. And those are humility, patience, and tolerance. And you believe these could help gospel witness in a in a divided age. These themes also come come across well in, in these pages in this book. Um, could you speak on each of these practices and maybe also why why you think they're suitable uh, for the issues you address in this book? Sure. And let me back up and just just say that in the in the earlier book, Confident Pluralism, I was writing to an audience of kind of the educated lay reader who of any particular belief or no belief. So there's no, there's no particular religious or philosophical context. One needs to come uh, bring to confident pluralism. It's just, are you, do you care about the history and law and the country? And do you care about where the country's going? That's kind of the, the entry point. Uh, and with that in mind, I, I pitched in confident pluralism that these aspirations of humility, patience, and tolerance might be, the kinds of broadly shared commitments that Americans of all political and religious viewpoints could approach as a, a kind of common ground way of engaging with one another. And, and so let me just kind of walk through them briefly. But with humility, I mean the idea that we, we hold loosely our ability to persuade others about our core and fundamental beliefs. It doesn't mean that we don't believe in truth, but it does mean that we might be limited in the way that we can persuade others. And, and I think to some extent, an openness to the possibility that we might be wrong. And and all through human history, we realize people are wrong about things and we'll be wrong about some things ourselves in the fullness of time. So a kind of epistemic humility that, that, that gives us um, a pause about, claims and beliefs that we just think are are necessarily self-evident to everyone. That's humility. The second aspiration is patience, the idea that we enter relationships and conversations with a posture of seeking to listen, to understand, and to empathize. And it doesn't mean that patience necessarily sets up acceptance or understanding, but it, but it suggests that we start the conversations with the sense that we'll learn something, that we'll ask follow-ups, that we'll be open to hearing things differently. And then finally, tolerance. Tolerance is the idea that even though we might not respect all ideas out there and all beliefs, 
we can do the hard work of respecting people and and for the most part separating people from the ideas they hold and and here i think we have to do some important work against notion of of tolerance that are creeping into higher ed the idea that you only tolerate me if you fully accept and believe everything that I believe as good and right and true. Uh, and I hear that a lot, you know, in higher ed circles. I, I also think it's just philosophically flawed. None of us actually believes and accepts everything as good and right. We all draw our lines. And, and so this aspiration of tolerance that would say, you have to accept everything about me is not, uh, it's not sustainable as, as human beings, but we can say uh, we can work to see each other as as human beings and to find common ground, even when we hold vastly different beliefs. And and then this ties a little bit into how Tim and I see these aspirations particularly suited to Christians. I mean, again, I think anybody can arrive at them, but Christians have some resources at their disposal that can help them in, in this effort. One is uh, the notion of the image bearer, that every created person we encounter is made in the image of God. Uh, And with that reminder, it becomes very hard to write off any human being as completely intolerable or completely outside the pale. But the other, the other connection here is uh, I think these aspirations of humility, patience, and tolerance map onto the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. And when we think about the difference between aspirations and virtues, an aspiration is something that we can call people toward. We can model and suggest it and hope that there is an imagination or a vision that's sparked. But a virtue is something that is inculcated through practices. It's it's already who we are. And as Christians who claim that we are people molded in faith, hope, and love, we should be able to uh, from that from that foundation, we should be able to engage with humility, patience, and tolerance. Uh, and it, and it, it depends upon the actually habituated practices and virtues. Uh, but but if we if we claim to have these, then we should be leading the way and and showing them to others. John, well, maybe if we could backtrack some before before discussing some of the individual chapters here, um, the backdrop for the questions that are addressed in the book. Um, you talk about the decline of Protestantism. Uh, what do you mean by this phrase? Yeah, so I think, you know, part of, as we were talking earlier about the importance of understanding our past and understanding history, part of the American story is that for a large segment of this country's history, the white middle class was largely shaped by Protestant values, broadly Protestant values. This was true at the framing of the country. Uh, This was true through really the 1950s. And it doesn't mean by any stretch that America was a Christian nation or anything like that, but it does mean that these largely Protestant values were a kind of unifier for the white middle class. And uh, I think buried in that is also the significance of the differences that were overcome. So when we look back at 1791 and the framing of the First Amendment, we might think, well, how hard was it for a bunch of white Protestants to get along with each other? But the answer is it was extremely hard. People were killing each other over their religious differences within Protestantism elsewhere in the world. And in 1791 and around that time, Americans figured out a different way to do it without killing each other. That's not that's no small thing. And so we should recognize the 
diversity that was even within Protestantism. That said, there was a lot of homogenous culture and social baseline assumptions. And so if you weren't a white Protestant uh, at, any po- at any point in our history prior to uh, the end of the 20th century, your voice might not be heard. That's especially true if you were um, African-American or Native American, if you were a woman, uh, in all kinds of other ways, if you were part of an unseen or unheard uh, minority of any sort, you were not part of an assumed baseline. And, and we can think about that with respect to religious faith, too. The, the history of religious freedom in the United States is really the history of religious dissenters against Protestantism. When you think about the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Catholics um, or Native American spirituality, uh, we, we, we would not have the understanding of the free exercise of religion that we have today without dissenting religious traditions that press against Protestant consensus norms. And, and then we see the fracturing of that consensus norm really beginning, I would say, in the, the last half of the 20th century, but in some important and profound ways so that assumed values, assumed agreement and norms are no longer there. And and I think one of the recognitions for a lot of people is maybe they were never there as much as some people thought, right? Maybe the, the sense of a past unity or an agreement was really premised upon the silencing of different voices. And that's that's certainly true when we think about certain, um, certain issues around, say, um, the treatment of African-Americans. It was there, there is not a there is not a lovely nostalgic time of unity to go back to in the 1950s if you're black in this country, right? You would much prefer today. Uh, my own heritage, my uh, my grandparents are Japanese Americans, and they were interned uh, at Manzanar in World War II and lost uh, you know four years in prison because they were Japanese. So I'm not interested in going back to the 1940s. I would much prefer to hang out here where my people are not imprisoned. Uh, and, and so I think the sense of um, the diminished consensus is is very freeing and hopeful for a lot of people. But if you are part of the consensus, you can you can appreciate why you might feel a bit of dissonance or a bit of fracture or chaos. If, if everything you assumed uh, or, or or your kind of cultural baseline assumed, 50 or 60 years ago is no longer in play, then it can be kind of disorienting. If it used to be you could go to the public school and assume that everyone knew something about Christianity or that you would say the Pledge of Allegiance and maybe a prayer in school, if you could walk down uh, the street and assume that businesses would be closed on Sundays because people were in church, if that was your view of the world, if you could assume that your elected officials would say prayers to more or less a Christian God, then then the diminishment or the loss of that over a relatively short period of time, when you think about the arc of our country or human history, that can be very disorienting and it can feel like a threat uh, to a way of life or an understanding of the world. And, and, and I think depending on where one situates oneself in the middle of all of these changes, that says a lot about uh, kind of whether the current moment is one of opportunity or one of concern and fear. And that's part of the tension in the narrative that people are navigating today. And I would say it's especially true within American Christianity. Uh, we, we've seen seen and read a lot about 
sort of the story of white evangelicalism lately. And there is a, a kind of dialogue and um, conversation around questions of race in particular that is unfolding very much along these lines, looking back at past eras of our history, looking at the current moment in history and assessing uh, relative senses of those times based on on one's understanding of one's place in the world. That's really helpful. Well, well, John, I want to talk to you about the chapter you included in part two, communicating our engagement titled The Translator. But before we do that, were there any favorites you had of the other authors uh, of their chapters, or at least ones that you thought were particularly engaging or um, or could you share a bit about about those contributions? Yeah, you know, I could really, I could talk a lot about this. Uh, we, we spent so much time on the front end choosing and selecting uh, and pitching this book to these particular authors. And so I was really pleased with who ended up contributing. And, and as Tim and I were editing along the way, we were just very grateful for the voices we heard. I would, I would definitely commend the opening chapter by Kristen Dede Johnson, a theologian who teaches at Western Seminary and really just sets up, I think, in very accessible but in, in important terms from the perspective of political theology, why this matters and what's going on in our current moment. Uh, my friend Tish Harrison Warren is is one of the best writers I know, and so it was just a joy to uh, read her drafts, help her in some of the, make some of her writing even better, I think, and and just learn from her about the craft of the craft and sense of self-understanding of what it means to be a writer and what it means to bring words into the world. Um, and so that stood out to me as well. And then I would just say that the personal stories that come through in these chapters and these narratives uh, were, they, they just make people more complex and more interesting and um, I, I think more real. And so I loved that aspect of it. And one of the things that I've loved about this book is the reception has varied tremendously. Some people really love it. Some people don't like it as much. But what really strikes me is that individual chapters have been very moving to different people, but it's not at all consistent. So at some point I've heard just extreme praise uh, of every single chapter in the book and, and from people who didn't like other chapters and vice versa. And so I, I sort of love the way this has ended up being woven together in a way that reaches profoundly different people through different voices. Yeah, I think it, it really is wide, wide reaching. Um, well, John, your chapter is titled The Translator. Can you outline for us what you describe in this chapter? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, well, the, one of the benefits of being the editor of the book is I got to assign myself my own <laughs> chapter here. So I, I specifically thought of this idea of translator as, as really how I see my own life as particularly a Christian professor teaching at a non-Christian research university. And I see my my vocational role here as one of really dual translation. Uh, so half the time I'm sitting in my university office thinking, uh, my colleagues and the university, they, they just don't get me as a Christian. And I need to do some hard work of trying to explain what I believe, why I believe it, and why it makes sense to me as part of the world. But then I'll also go to church on Sunday and be sitting in the sanctuary and thinking, looking around, thinking, my fellow parishioners here, they don't understand me either. They have no idea what it means to be a university professor. They're suspicious of higher ed. And I need to do the hard work of explaining to them why 
the work of higher ed is really important, why there are really amazing teachers and students there, Christians, non-Christians, everyone under the sun, most people committed to their craft and trying to make a, a difference in the world. Uh, and so that that world or, or that idea of dual translation, where I've got to have my feet firmly planted both in the university and in the church, and then just constantly doing the work of translating back and forth. And, and from that premise, kind of being reminded or trying to think through by writing this chapter, the, the other ways in which I find myself a translator. So certainly one is as a teacher and, and also as a lawyer, the work that I do to take specialized expertise and make it understandable to broader audiences, to new audiences, to remind myself that even if I've studied something quite in depth, or even if I've read something many times, if it's the first instance of trying to explain it to somebody else, then I need to slow down and I need to imagine not just what it means to know my content very well, but what it means to know my audience very well and and to care about the opportunities and challenges that the audience will have in hearing something that I'm attempting to translate. And this is true. This is generalizable, I think, for a lot of people and the work that they do in the lives they live as they try to explain something about their own lives or their own faith to someone else. The, the work it takes, again, not just to know uh, that about which you're speaking, but the person to whom you're speaking. And that, that effective translation really requires both of those elements. So that was sort of the setup of the chapter there. Yeah, the, the task of bridging multiple contexts, as you kind of described there in the chapter, it, you talk about it, it requires a sense of humility. And and I appreciated how you, how you mentioned that. And because you can't always prove to others why what you believe is right and why what they believe is wrong. And, um, and you know, it's not simply a matter, as you say, of, of pointing out a logical, a logical fallacy or, or a knowledge gap, but but it does kind of depend on on relationships that you know, lead to change over time sometimes. And yeah, I thought, I thought that was really wise. I appreciate um, that. Yeah. And, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's the, it's a sense of humility about how one's perspective enters into the world, but it's also a recognition that anybody who is bridging different communities or attempting to translate across them is necessarily going to be constrained in full and absolute immersion into one community or the other. So there's just a, there's, there's a, a sense in which there's almost a necessary loss in being a translator, which means yeah. that because you're able to translate outside of one community, you have an appreciation for some of the limits of that community and you're not as fully immersed into it as others might be. Uh, and I think that that comes with some risk, but it also, I think, brings tremendous opportunity. Yeah. Well, in, in the concluding chapter, you mentioned four practices, um, kind of after reflecting on the chapters here, that, that you think may provide the beginning of an answer to the question, what does faithful, what does a faithful presence actually look like in a, in a divided age? Can you tell us what these four practices are? Sure. And I should say first that when Tim and I use the term faithful presence, we're self-consciously drawing from the sociologist James Davison Hunter, who wrote an important book to change the world a few years ago. And, and Tim and I both think that uh, Hunter's view of faithful presence is the, the way of engagement for Christians and American society today that's neither 
seeking to control or take over society, nor withdraw completely from society. And we think it's essential for Christians to both understand, but also embody that, that posture of faithful presence. So that's how we, that's the foundation uh, from which we suggest these four practical takeaways. And so the, the, just to walk through them, the first one is Christians should not over-identify with any particular political party or platform. And it's, you know, no need to say that one much clearer today, uh, as we've seen uh, really uh, some significant and striking examples of Christians who seem to be more driven by a political ideology or a commitment to a political party than they are to their faith. That's always been a risk. It's always been a temptation and a challenge, but it really feels to me that in the last few years, this has become uh, on a different level. And uh, again, the resources within Christianity are pretty clear and pretty abundant that avoiding this is absolutely essential. But but in practice, especially American Christians, uh, have a lot of work to do here. So that's one. The second is Christians should approach the community around them through a posture of love and service. Uh, the idea that it is important to, you know, as, as Christians say, speak truth in love and to have both of those and speaking truth is, is important. But, but first and foremost, to be people who are known by their love and service by acting not out of self-interest, but out of interest for others. Now, that seems also very embedded in the Christian faith. And, and frankly, there have been too many examples of Christians in the United States who assume that really what their fight should be about is their own self-protection. And so when I think about the work of religious freedom, where I spend a lot of time thinking and writing, I sometimes encounter Christians that effectively are saying, religious freedom matters for Christians, not for others. <laughs> so if it comes to protecting uh, Muslim Americans in the pursuit of their faith, some Christians will say, we're not interested in that. And that's just that's not how civil liberties work. That's not how the First Amendment works. But I don't think that's how the gospel works either. And, and so for Christians, tangibly, sacrificially, and sometimes against their own interest, to lead with love and service uh, is important. Second, Christians should recognize that, or this is third. Third, Christians should recognize that the gospel subverts rival stories and accounts of reality. So in other words, if, if as Christians say, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ fundamentally changes the created order and everything in it, then all of our stories and all of our identities and all of our hopes and dreams have to be subsumed into that larger account of reality. And that's going to be a, a, a message or a proposition that cuts in all directions, whether you're politically left or politically right, whether you're rich or poor, whatever your race, gender, anything that you, that ultimately part of assuming uh an identity as a Christian is subverting all of that to a larger, more concrete, deeper, and more real sense of reality. And that that's an ongoing effort. It's not, it's not like you just kind of sit down and commit to that, but you've got to recommit and embody that every single day of your life against all kinds of challenges and idols and temptations and sins. And uh, it, it's sort of a never ending project, but one that becomes essential to continue to pursue. And then finally, in this picking up on the aspirations from confident pluralism, that Christians should reach out to others with humility, patience, and tolerance. Again, the idea that anybody in society who cares about 
some of the massive challenges we're confronting across deep differences. Anybody should be able to lean or deep. Uh, so anybody should be able to dive into humility, patience, and tolerance. But Christians certainly have these deeper resources that can help them to that and uh, through faith, hope, and love. Yeah, I think that's really well expressed. And and John, I think it's a it's a really timely book. Um, it's been great to talk with you and hear your thoughts about um, about the book and, and how you think it'll serve people well today. Um, but before we wrap up, can you tell us what you're working on next, what, what you may plan to write or what's next? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, at the moment, I mostly just have a bunch of hodgepodge ideas floating around and trying to survive the challenge of teaching through Zoom and those sorts of things. Um, sure. uh, and I have some more, more purely academic work uh, around my First Amendment work that would be maybe of less interest to a general audience. Um, but the, the, one of the ideas that I'm, I'm slowly trying to wrap my head around is, is how to combine, I think, in the mode of uncommon ground, how to pursue better storytelling and better narrative, which is increasingly the way I think that people approach books and ideas without sacrificing uh, expertise or nuance. And so when I think about some of the issues confronting our society today and some of the deep divides, not just not just descriptively talking about the fact of divides, but getting into some of the issues, whether it's trying to understand critical race theory or sexual assault or uh, white supremacy or whatever it might be, uh, and, and unpacking some of those ideas, particularly through my own expertise of law and theory. Is there a way to do that that's based around narrative and storytelling that doesn't do the typical academic move of, you know, a hundred footnotes and <laughs> lots <Right>. of <laughs> uh, citations and words, but trying actually to, well, maybe as we were talking about just a minute ago, trying to translate those concepts in a way that can help other people engage with them without losing too much of the nuance. So that's kind of the next thing on the plate, I think. Yeah. Well, that sounds like interesting work and we wish you the best with that, but you know, for now, thanks for writing this book. It's called Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. It's published in 2020. And John, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's been great. Zach, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, been great talking to you. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll see you again next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.